Hello, and welcome to Should Have Listened to My Mother, a weekly podcast where I share conversations with guests about their relationship with their mother and the role she played in their life and their journey. I often ask the question, are you who you are today because of or in spite of your mother? If you'd like to share a story about your mother, my email is jackie at shouldhavelistenedtomymother.com. This week's guest is a world-renowned French jazz guitarist who's headlined at some of the top performance venues in the world, including Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, the Town Hall in New York City. He's performed at the Montreal Jazz Festival, the Rochester International Jazz Festival, and the Django Reinhardt Festival in France. He's traveled the world to show his love and appreciation for Django Reinhardt's phenomenal improvisational music. And I want to welcome my neighbor across the street, <laughs> Stefan Rembel, to Should Have Listened to My Mother. Hello, Jackie. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. We could you. be talking face to face, but we are not because of many circumstances. So as this podcast progresses, we talk a little bit about who you are and how you became, who, how you were formed and molded in this world, and the influence that your mom had on you. Please tell us your mom's name. My mom's name is Corinne. Corinne. Uh, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, with an O. It's like Karine, but Corinne. Corinne. Okay. Yeah. And you, were you born in Paris? Yes, I was born in uh, Paris in the 14th district. The arrondissement? Yeah, for, uh, 14th arrondissement. I was mm -hmm. born on February 27, 1974. I'm Pisces. <laughs> Wait, is your birthday really February 27th? Yes. So we're both Pisces. It's just my birthday as well. February 27th? Yes! <laughs> oh. There you go. <laughs> now we're going to have to have another reason to get together and celebrate. Oh, that's so much fun. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> all right. I'm learning all of these wonderful things about you, and the show's just getting started. So, Corinne is your mom. Yes. And, um, and do you have siblings? Yes, I have two sisters, um, two younger sisters. One is... Uh, 40 and the other one is 43. And are your parents performers or is your mom a performer? No, my mom was a, a school teacher. She was a, a first grade kindergarten. In French, we don't have kindergarten. We have only first grade. So she was a first grade teacher. She was the one teaching kids to read and to write and all that. How their whole world opens up by beginning to learn to read and write. That's very neat. Yes. Uh, you know, in the movie or in the, the, the book Dune by Frank Herbert, he says the beginning is a very delicate time. And uh, it's always a very delicate time to learn to read and to write. I have the feeling it might be the most important uh, important uh, year in our life because we're set in motion in this world with those um, essential tools to function and to navigate. What was it about your mom that made her a good teacher? My mom is someone, uh, she's, very, she's a traditionalist, so she always taught uh, the old ways, um, which are very solid, very good. Um, she was, she's a very meticulous person. She paid great attention on uh, the details, on uh, how to form letters, how to... Um, to take care of like um, like the aesthetic 
of everything that's been done. And also, um, she had a real care for the students, you know, for the kids to really achieve something. She was very dedicated. She read a lot about um, pedagogy and how to teach and psychology and all that. So she's very, very dedicated to that. She really had, like, the kids in mind really strongly. That's kind of key to the whole thing, right? so hard to be a teacher, and I know your wife is a teacher, and I respect and admire teachers now more than ever. And that's just a small part of your life, right? Because you have your own family to concentrate on as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How long did she teach? Uh, She taught for, um, I don't know, 35 years, 40 years. Was she working when you were a child? In your formative years, was she working? She started working when I was Eight years old, I believe. Yeah. So she must have been like 30 or something like that. Is she still with us, your mom? Oh, yeah, yeah. She's in France right now, in Fontainebleau. She's been retired for two years now. Just admire teachers so much, and I think everyone is really learning to admire teachers. <laughs> yeah, you know, when, uh, like, in, in not so long ago, until like maybe the 80s or something. The teacher was always the most important person in town. When you had, uh, like, the teacher, you know, where I grew up in France, in our villages and stuff, that's the person you used to invite at home for lunch. Um, you used to listen. It's someone, uh, everyone was, like, very respectuous and uh, um, very, uh, how do you say, like, yeah, had a lot of respect for the for the teacher and regarded the teacher as a higher authority uh, in terms of uh, uh, knowledge and uh, the teacher was a very strong place in society and I still have I still hold the same respect for the teachers you know um, it was also like kind of like a, a further figure it was not the friend teacher was never your friend it was someone the kids were kind of a little bit afraid of not afraid like someone mean but like a real figure of knowledge and authority. And um, there was always that notion of respect, you know. And I think that's a very powerful thing that we start seeing decaying, unfortunately. But um, the teachers are like... Like, when you see parents, like, bullying teachers and stuff, like, attacking teachers and all, like, it's always the teacher's fault. And it never existed before, you know. We didn't have that. You can't do that. You know, the teacher is like a key member of our society, and they must be treated with a lot of respect. I couldn't agree more. Well said, especially coming from the son of a teacher. <laughs> and, and it's a shame how society has changed. But I don't want to. I don't want to concentrate on the negative. I want to concentrate on the positive. No, no, no. It's like a. Um, no, no, but a lot of people are still respectful for teachers and all, but we tend to not regard them as, like, such a high authority anymore. And that's, I think that's a bit too bad, but whatever. Hopefully that will change going forward. I hope so. Yeah, we'll see. So are you what we call in the U.S. a mama's boy? Well, um, you know, when you, I studied psychology, uh, Jungian psychologist, mm-hmm. Carl Gustav Jung. I love Carl Gustav Jung. Yeah, he was um, 
I believe he was a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and he worked very closely with Freud for many years. And um, one of the things he talks about is the animus and the anima. The animus is the male figure within a woman, and the anima is the female figure within uh, a man. And uh, the anima, or the animus for the woman, or the anima for the man, is the bridge between the conscious psyche of the being to this to his subconscious. So, for example, for a man, he reaches his, his subconscious through his feminine figure, and he brings back from the subconscious uh, almost everything, because the the conscious is uh, asleep. We think we are awake, but we are pretty much asleep. And uh, we are guided by uh, by what we call instinct, and uh, I think we don't even control. Uh, not we basically have no control of, of ourselves because everything that comes to us comes from our subconscious. So it comes from that that ocean of we don't know what because it's completely unconscious. We don't know what it is, but um, it appears in our psyche through dreams, through actions that we commit to our views of the world, our character, and stuff like that. And um, for, for a man, uh, the, the anima, that the, the, the feminine figure inside, which can be like a representation of the great goddess, like the myth of Isis and all that, is what establish the bridge and the communication. And so the, um, the mother has like a crucial role uh, at birth because uh, for any children, boy or girl, first of all, the mother is the protecting figure from, um, uh, how can I say that, from like the fear coming from the subconscious. Like, uh, you fear at night, you fear monsters, you, you don't understand, like something, you feel something's going to attack you, like ghosts and stuff, you don't even know what that is, you know, it's like a completely, it's a thing from inside. And um, the mother is the one that keeps uh, all these uh, uh, terrors, you know, these psychological terrors away. So she's kind of like the guardian of, like, this door. It's a very important role. And it's also um, uh, pure love. Mother is supposedly, in some cases, it's not, which creates a great damage. But the mother is always the person that you know you get unconditional love from. Uh, the mother has all the patients in the world. The mother is always there. It's quite something uh, incredible to witness. The, the mother is the most important being in our life, for sure. And um, as a man, it's even more important in some places, on some ways, because this is how you build your uh, anima, anima, your like uh, feminine figure inside. It's based basically on like the mother. So. The man is going to project on any other woman in his life kind of an image of his mother, you know, like at least like things that he got from from this image. And he's going to construct the idea of a, of an, a feminine ideal coming from the mother. So the interaction between the man and the mother is very important for that. And then after, of course, there's the separation uh the individuation, which usually like used to be done to... Um, initiatic ceremonies for the young men. Uh, we don't have that anymore, so we have to find ways to construct that. But, um, yeah, so that's why, like, having the mother is, like, such an important part of life and maybe 
one notch more important for for the the men than for the women for this reason, you know. Do you think it makes you a better husband? Well, you have to be careful not to project. That's <laughs> that's the that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing with individuation and uh, with the. Um, initiatic process is to actually be being more conscious of that because the the feminine figure or the anima lives in the subconscious it is like it's it can it's, it can be like a all invaded all invading figure in the in the in the mind of the man so you have to be careful not to project that in anyone and recognize that there is no one is the anima that's one of the, uh, the the process of initiation is to recognize that this anima exists in your mind only, that she is not your mother and that she is not your wife or anything. You know, it's the anima. So, you you once you can like reconstruct that within you, you reconstruct a very healthy anima, and then you can function better. So I assume when you graduated from the top of your class at Berkeley School of Music, you didn't just study music. <laughs> Well, at, at Berkeley, at Berkeley, I was re- re- really into music. You know, I tried to integrate all these new elements coming from uh, the American culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came to the U.S. in uh, August 2000, and Berkeley started in uh, September 2000 for me. So it was a brand new country for me, a brand new language, a brand new culture. But I knew it was the root of jazz. So this is what I tried to integrate the most. Plus, uh, hanging with the African students, Indian students, Indian teachers and African teachers and all that, I tried to learn like languages from other places, like rhythmical languages and all. And then I went to New York in 2003. So um, this is when uh, everything that I tried to learn at Berkeley in terms of, uh, of the music uh, started to come to fruition. And this is when I really started integrating in the music all my philosophy and all the work on art psychology and all. This is when I really started doing that. I think it's really important how you pull everything together, the psychology, the cultural aspects. And we're going to get into this in, in a couple of minutes, how you became so compassionate about Django's music and you lived at the gypsy camps in order to completely immerse yourself and to fully understand the music. And I think not everybody does that. Yeah, uh, it was a strange period. Um, I discovered uh, the gypsies in, I would say, 92, 93, something like that. I must have been like 18 years old, 17, 18, 19, maybe. And I'm from Fontainebleau, so this is where Django was from. And um, Django was always a big presence in our life. When I was like 15 years old and we used to go to the pub and have drinks and all, I know 15 years old seems yeah like very young, but in France, you know, it's like normal. especially especially back then. Now I think it's different, it's a bit more strict. But when I was like 15, 16, we used to go to the pub and have like a beer, and no one would bother us, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, we would see uh, Baby Crenard, He was always there. Uh, there was always like that music was always around, kind of, you know. But it was like kind of buried and hidden, you know. Um, so I started like uh, hunting for it. I was like, where can I play this? You know, and meet some gypsies, find a guy here, another guy there. Like, 
And then a funny song, my master, Serge Krief, uh, he showed me like all the stuff about all the tricks about playing Django and all. And then I started meeting like Moreno and I started meeting gypsies and go to their camps, campsite and play and spend like a lot of time there. And I was doing that while uh, studying at school, uh, school of music. So I was like studying harmony and all that on one end. And then like as soon as I would be done, there would be classes in the morning from like 10 to 12, something like that. My friend would pick me up and we would go to the north of Paris and spend the day at the gypsy camp and play guitar. So I have these vivid memories of uh, us arriving there. And when we would arrive, we would park and exit the car. And the first thing would be like the dogs running, uh, like uh, coming to us, you know, like, running at us. And uh, suddenly the kids would arrive. They would be like, hey, Stefan and Emmanuel, they're here. Like, one and third, everyone would greet us and they would give us immediately a chair. Do you want to drink something? Do you want to eat something? Like, it was uh, like right away, you know, like, such beautiful people. And then uh, we would sit down and they would feed us with sandwiches and coffee and beer, whatever we wanted. And then we would play all day long and they would listen and everyone would be there. It was like really amazing. It was so, something, uh, something about it was very alive and archaic. It touched the, the, the very thing that makes us human uh, is the presence of nature the presence of simple things like a fire, uh, the moon, you know, it's very simple and very raw. And I, I always felt that life coming out of that very simple human condition. Uh, actually, Nietzsche, uh, who I absolutely love, Nietzsche is like a, a big uh, defender of this idea of dancing in the wind and dancing under the stars and producing stars from our inner chaos, you know? Mm-hmm. Native Americans, that's all that they did was salute the stars in the sky with their music and and their food and their community, right? Their tribes. And that's what we do. You know, if you come to Barbes and we play, this is what we do. It doesn't matter if it's at Barbes or in nature. We try to touch that primal thing that makes us individuals, a beautiful individual, um, uh, Diverse individuals, very unique, each one of us. Uh, I'm, I'm, I have an allergy to conformity. <laughs> That's why I'm a musician, probably. <laughs> but uh, I love that diversity of people and the thing that gets us all together. Like We're not machines, we're not robots. We're like each one of us unique. So it's good when we can like uh, get together around this primal feelings, you know, of being human. So this is where I feel alive, you know, and that's, I know like going to the gypsy camp, that's the thing that I felt is that true life that came out of them. That was totally amazing. Totally, uh, I did that for years and that's like an incredible experience. And you started playing classical piano initially, right? Very young. And then you went to the guitar. Yes, I did uh, studying piano when I was four years old. And I studied with a lady called Mademoiselle Lecomte, Gilbert Lecomte, and she was part of the crew of Nadia Boulanger. So Nadia Boulanger is perhaps the greatest music teacher of the 20th century. She died in 1980. Um, she was born in like 1890, I think, or 1889, something like that. Uh, she was an incredible musician, and she created 
a school that was like a summer school for a foreign students. It was called the American Conservatory. And people would come all over the world every year to Fontainebleau, to my town, to study with their composition and all that, and the art of French music. So they would learn the art of Ravel and Debussy and uh, Lily Boulanger and all these guys, all the, 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 what we call the Impressionists, you know, which is really the French school. So you'd have people, a lot of Americans would come and would learn from her. You had like a, you had like a Walter Piston and Aaron Copeland, all these people, they came to study with her. Uh, and later you had also people like Quincy Jones who went to Fontainebleau to study with her. You had uh, Astor Piazzolla went to study with her. She, she, the list of people she taught is incredible. And my piano teacher was part of that group, was of an intense group of, uh, of musicians. And she was a, the piano player. She was an incredible piano player. She was what we call an accompanist. She would comp, but meaning she would comp for the singers and the dancers at the Paris Conservatory. She was the one, so it's like one post, the best. And she could sight read anything on site at any tempo. And she could transpose anything on site sight reading. She could take a music score or an orchestra, reduce it on site. Like that. She was like an incredible musician. Um, it's a very special breed of musician that they, at, the, at the conservatory. Uh, my friend told me it's like, a, the, it's like the circus. They can do anything. <laughs> so, but she's, she was an incredible, incredibly dedicated lady. She never got married or anything. She lived a life of uh, solitude with the music. And she was very intense. She was a beautiful person. And she was teaching us the ancient way. Like I learned really... My foundation is learned from that 1900 French school, you know. You're still four years old. Four years old. So she was like, uh, like 78. She was in her late 70s, probably her 80s already. And I had her as a teacher for five years and she died. And then I continued with her best student. Wow. I have so many questions about your mom, too. But you started with classical foundation of music as did Django Reinhardt, who you fell madly in love with. He, he loved Debussy and the classics, and he went on to this stunning career, unfortunately cut short suddenly, but this stunning career of music that encompasses everything from gypsy to jazz to Spanish to there's so much emotion in that because there's no words there's no lyrics where does your mind or your heart go as a musician when you're in the middle of one of those phenomenal performances ah that's the great mystery no, <laughs> oh, come no on. one you can gotta share no one it. <laughs> no this is this is why it's so beautiful you know this is one thing that we are losing these days is the ability to recognize when something is a great mystery and accept it as such most of life is completely unknown to, to us and is a complete mystery. We don't understand it. We don't know what it is. You, we can try to understand like vaguely and, and mumble something about matter of this and like, I don't know, like this is how like things are. I don't know, like, um, uh, like physics and all this is mumbling. The reality is sort of great mystery. And I love that mystery. And when we play, there is no time. Very almost psychedelic experience. There is no time. We lose track of time. And we 
are in a certain zone that I cannot describe, and the people are with us in that zone. I know that because we start, we are like the the button, you know. We push the first button, and he starts sending something to people, and they send it back to us. We send it back to them. They send it back to us. And suddenly, we are all one in that zone. It's something, I be, because I don't know what music is. It's a great mystery. I don't know what this experience is. It's a great mystery. But I know we need it as human beings because it's healing. It's something that appeals to like the highest, uh, the highest levels of the human mind. It is something that's so deeply ingrained in us. It's, it's the, the only word that I can find is like it's healing. And also physically, a few times I went to, to play a show and I was like with high fever and all like really, really, really sick. And I would play everything I could in that show. And by the end of the show, I would be cured. And I would be like refreshed with an incredible energy. And I see people experiencing the same on the other side. I see people coming to the show being sad, living like very happy, coming with problems, living with no problems, you know. It's, it's something really magical. Music is something magic, really. Why did your mom put you into piano lessons at such a young age? So my mom had piano lessons when she was young, too. That's one of the things that came from my grandma, who was also uh, educated in music on an early age. And my mom always said music is part of education. So you do your music like you do mathematics and all that is part of it. So it's a very intense concept, you know, um, and of course, uh, classical, because this is the foundation of harmony. And it's the, you know, what we call classical, we think of a genre, but it's not a genre. It's a, it's a, it's a way of uh, doing something. You know, when you're, uh, let's say you do physics, you do classic physics, you do it close to the rules of nature. You know, you're not, you're not letting your instincts go too much in it. You, learn, you try to rely on the, the rules of nature. Um, and that's like that's like classic literature and all that. It's like classic philosophy. It's not really a genre. It's a it's a way of doing things where you try to stay closer to this uh, to this higher truth, you know. And uh, so I started with that classical with that lady, and yeah, music is part of education. And it's a funny thing because I tend to think the same. Uh, and I'm not talking about folk music, which is part of our life. It's a different thing than education. You know, singing a song, like being a songwriter, this is not the same thing as composing um, like Mozart, you know. These are two different branches of music, you know. And they bring a different result, and we need both. We need both. Both sides. Um, the, the folk aspect, we need it because this is how we tell our stories as humans. That keeps us into into our human nature, but the rest is about understanding the nature of music itself, or getting closer to it, and you feel that height of uh, the things that are sacred and bigger than yourself. Uh, it's like a it's like a cathedral, it's like a giant cathedral built up of like exact um, uh, proportions, and there's something into it that is like crazy, you know. That's the classical. There's the classical and the folk, and both are part of us, you know. I always refer to it as um, the two parts of a human being, uh, which is uh, we are a nomad and an architect. 
those mm-hmm. two things within us. So uh, the more folk aspect uh, talks to our nomad, nomadic self, and the more like um, uh, organized and architectural and all to the architect in us. So we are both of it, an architect and a, and a nomad. I like and that. I think it's, That's great. It, and I think it's an important thing to like uh, have a respect for the music and learn uh, because you learn also like uh, what it is to master an art. It, it's really difficult, and even if you don't become a musician, you still develop a taste for like music well done. Not only a message carried within the music, but a music well done, and you also um, carry a respect for musicians. You see, you recognize how difficult it is to play music at any level, you know, like it's difficult no matter what. So there is a certain respect that comes into place, you know, when you when you do that and you recognize the importance of the musician. And uh, it's a funny thing because music is part of the seven liberal arts, which was the, the education in the antique world and also in the Renaissance world. Um, People such as Botticelli and Da Vinci, all these guys, they've been educated in the seven liberal arts. Um, there's actually a painting of uh, Botticelli about the seven liberal arts. Yes, and the Renaissance man, the expression of Renaissance man, came about during that era. All the men had to develop their skills, so their, their knowledge in physics and social accomplishments and the arts. They were absolutely brilliant, and we think we're smart now, but look how advanced they were way back then. Unfortunately, we don't have that in the United States. Oh, my god! No, right right now, now, we need a, now we need a job in finance. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. It's embarrassing. Education is one of the most important things, and it's just... Anyway, so we need to get back on track here a little bit. I want to talk to you about your mother. When you... When you were doing your music studies and playing with the gypsies, did your mom know what you were doing and did she support it? Did she know you were going hanging out with all these wonderful people? Yes, my mom has always been uh, encouraging for me to do whatever I wanted. Uh, I had a deal with my parents. I needed to have my high school diploma. And then they would support me in anything I wanted to do. So I wanted to be a musician, and they supported me in that, you know. My mom, with her uh, loving presence and her musical presence, my mom is very attracted to the arts, you know. She really loves music and painting and calligraphy, and she sings in a choral now. So she always was, like, very um, receptive to it, you know. My dad was more the, the guy who taught me how to function in it. My dad is more like... It's, he listens a bit to music and all, but he's not so artistic. You know, he was a computer engineer, so he's a bit, uh, a bit more. Um, I don't know how to say structured. <laughs> structured. Yeah, nice. Thank you. <laughs> a bit more structured, but he helped me like on how to function uh, rationally in the music industry. That's why he pushed me. You know. Wow, that's so impressive. That's fantastic. Yeah. Because often a, a son or daughter wants to pursue the arts and the parents are like, no, that's not practical enough. You need a job. They didn't have the support at home. That's all I'm trying to say. Of course, of course. Yeah, 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 I know. But my, my dad asked me the right questions. I know it's about my mom, but my dad asked me the right questions in this field. He was always like, all right, you want to be a musician? That's great. I'm going to help you. How can I help you? How are you going to make a living? Where 
Are you going to find money to pay for your rent and all that in the music field? How do you do that? And, you know, I was like maybe 16 or 17, and it raised like real questions in my mind. Questions you don't want to approach when you're a teenager, of course. And questions that artists are very often, um, they, find it like, they find it like repellent. You know, like, ah, I don't want to bring that into my world, you know, which I understand because these are not the most pleasant thoughts, you know. But nonetheless, it's a reality of this world that we need. We're not from this world, but we're in this world, said uh, St. Paul. So we need to function in this world. And um, so that they, these were like legit questions, you know, and that post pushes me to say, okay, this is what I like. I like to perform and I like to teach. It was like, what do you like? You know, I like to perform, I like to teach. Okay, so how are you going to make a living? I said, okay, well, I'm going to teach. I'm going to organize this and this and that. And that pushed me to like organize myself. Well, that's fantastic. And then I learned all by myself, like, but with his questioning and all, I was like, oh, yeah, it's true. Like, rationally, like, I honestly have to admit that I have to find a way. And I started teaching and all. And at 19 years old, I got my first apartment and I moved out of my parents and I paid for my school and I was uh, independent. And I was teaching, you know, and I was teaching, playing a few gigs. And this is how I started, you know. So that was the the rational aspect, you know. So I, I keep trying to be like uh, a bit organized and functioning, you know. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm trying not to be dysfunctional in this world, and that's because of my dad and my mom. She's more about the aesthetic of things, you know. She comments a lot on the on the aesthetic, and she she's still a very supporting figure in my in my career for that. And she's seen you perform a number of times, I'd imagine. Oh, many times. And, you know, I organize every year a festival called Django Agogo in town. And they are always here, like, helping, putting up posters. And they're just here, like, helping me, like, running it. Uh, they are behind the scene, you know. Here like, in Maplewood. They come to the Maplewood. Oh, yeah. They come oh, every year fantastic. for the festival. They're in Maplewood. They love it. And they are, like, very supportive. And it's very important, you know. This is a, a, great, uh, a great fortune I always considered the presence of my parents a great, great, great fortune. My guest is Stefan Rembel, and he is my neighbor. <laughs> this is the <laughs> most we've spoken in the years that he's lived across the street, so this is pretty great. I have seen you perform. I saw your Django Agogo performance last year, and I wanted to mention to my listeners, if they are not familiar with you, if you go to YouTube, Stefan Rembel, you will see some of his performances, one in, in particular for the town hall in New York City when there are maybe 15 of your closest friends on stage with you performing. And it is such a, a magical experience. It kind of takes you out of your body to see, and it's exactly what you're talking about before. It's as though without even looking at one another or you just pass the baton from one performer to the other, to the other, to the other. And I was watching it and I just got completely lost and in a magical, ethereal place. You're lucky guy. You get to do this all the time. Yes. Um, it's a this is where I got my initiation, is in trying to, to create the Django Agogo. That was like, I really put a lot of energy in it, and I got a lot of like uh, rough moments with the, in the building process of it. 
which are great, you know. I, I embrace the the hardship with the with the good stuff, you know, because there's always something in it that must be there for the growth, you know. We should not take out the hardship. We should uh, learn to what's in, what's in there to learn. So, um, and this is why now I know it's like a great place because there was so much work before. And yes, I feel uh, I feel very fortunate to be able to do this, and I also feel very fortunate to have always had the support of my family, my parents, and now of my wife and all. And I feel very fortunate um, to have the inner energy and faith to like put that together. You know, like now it's now it's good, now it's rolling, so it's like way easier. But it requires a lot of energy, and it's not everyone who has that kind of uh, drive and I'm grateful that I have that drive because it's something that is needed in the music world. This is a this is a rough world. It's beautiful, but it's also rough because it's very very wild and uh, very uncertain. Not uh, with the other musicians, but in the structure of it. It's a uh, it's a thing you have to experience to understand what I'm talking about. It's crazy. It's the craziest. I uh, hate the word business for that, but it's the craziest... Uh, industry. Industry, yeah, it's a bit better, I guess. It's a cra- it's the craziest industry out there. It's crazy. The, the business has two sides always. Business has like an accounting side. So you sit down and you do numbers and you... I'm not into that. It's completely wild. But there is also that very exciting sense of battle, you know, like... Take all your money, invest it in a show, lose money, it doesn't matter, but you created something beautiful and you're broke and you go back to it. And it's like, it's like something, um, it's, it's very exciting, you know what I mean? Uh, I, I cannot explain to you what it is, but it's some kind of like, uh, it's like climbing the Himalayas, you know what I mean? Right. You just go and whatever. Too. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's very exciting. I love it. I just love it. Mm. Well, it shows in your music and it shows in your performances and the musicians that you keep close to you because they are just heaven sent. (laughs) And they've all worked really, really hard throughout their lifetime studying and perfecting their craft. Oh, yeah. An incredible band. Amazing musicians, really. So we have Corinne, your mom, who you adore and love and supported you and yes. embraced you. And the significance of that is monumental because not everybody has that. And the stories over this last year that I've been doing this podcast, I've heard some crazy stories. You're on the, on the very fortunate side. Not only has she supported you, she's a teacher. <laughs> so she's yeah. a win-win yeah. for me. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Stefan. I really appreciate you joining me. Oh, I can't wait to meet your mom. She's really sweet. Oh, She's my really, gosh. Oh, I love my mom. Yeah. Great. Uh, I am Jackie Tantillo. You've been listening to Should Have Listened to My Mother. And in case you do not know uh, Stefan Rembel's music, just go to YouTube and you can catch some great videos. Or you're on Facebook as well, Stefan Rembel. Yes. And you have mm-hmm. StefanRembel.com, I believe, as well. Is that your site? Thank you so much for joining me, and I will be back next week with another episode of Should Have Listened to My Mother. 
Thank you, Jackie.